I want to invite you this morning to open up your scriptures to Psalm 55. And Psalm 55 is where we find ourselves this morning in our summer series through the Psalms. And I want to, I want to begin this morning with one question. Have you ever been betrayed by somebody or had some circumstance that caused such deep anguish in your heart? In fact, brought upon such a restlessness that you couldn't sleep, that you were in so much pain that you just actually desired to uproot yourself and plant yourself in another location to flee from the distress that you're feeling. If you have ever had any kind of an experience like that or ever experienced that type of an agony, then you can gain at least a little bit of a sense of the agony that David expresses here this morning in Psalm 55. Psalm 55, really, it's the, uh, it's the fifth song in the second collection of David's writings in the Psalms. It begins at Psalm 51. And here this is the fifth book of that second collection of writings. And Psalm 55 really shares a special and a unique relationship with two of the preceding Psalms, Psalm 52 and Psalm 54. And if you remember those, Pastor Sean preached on those over the past couple of weeks. And there's a common theme in this relationship that they share together. And this theme is a theme of betrayal. In fact, if you remember back to Psalm 52, the setting here is that David, or I'm sorry, that Saul is king and Saul is seeking David's life. And the betrayal that is experienced in Psalm 52 is that a foreigner named Doeg discloses David's location to Saul. Jump forward to Psalm 54, and David again is betrayed, but he's betrayed by a different people group. He's betrayed by a people called the Ziphites, who are actually his own countrymen. And here, too, Saul is king, seeking David's life, and the Ziphites disclose that David is in the country, and they disclose this to Saul, and David is once again betrayed. But then we come to Psalm 55, and the, and the background and the setting is different in that, that Saul is, is dead at this point. David is king, and David is yet betrayed once again. So this theme of betrayal continues but this time he's not betrayed by a foreigner. He's not betrayed necessarily by his own countrymen. Well, he kind of is in a sense that he's betrayed by his own people. But the betrayal here is more specific in that he's betrayed by a very close personal friend. And that is what really brings about the anguish and despair um, that King David expresses in this psalm. This psalm, or the song as we might call it, really is the expression of a man who is in, in deep, deep, intense agony. And commentators have divided the psalm up in different ways, but the flow of the psalm tends to be a little bit choppy and doesn't flow as smoothly as many of the other laments that David has written. But the flow of the psalm goes something like this. David begins by making a plea to God to be merciful to him because of the agony created by the wicked. He expresses a desire of self-deliverance from the situation. He petitions God to destroy and confuse the efforts of the masses who are against him. He then narrows the scope to the primary reason for the depths of his pain. It's the betrayal of a close friend. David calls for the destruction of the wicked. He recognizes God as deliverer. And then finally, he recognizes God also as the divine judge of the wicked. And the truth that we really want to glean from Psalm 55 here this morning is to really remember and understand and truly believe that God is both our rescuer and our redeemer. And he is also the divine judge. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, Sean said, God wins. That's the point. God is the judge of the wicked and God wins. And he is our rescuer and our redeemer. 
So the psalm this morning really is, is more than just a psalm of a man in intense pain. But this psalm is really meant and is really purposeful in helping us to navigate through life's pains as well. So the background and the setting, it's, a, it's, it's not given to us as clearly like Psalm 52 and Psalm 54 were. In the heading, Psalm 52 actually told us that uh, this was a betrayal of Doag. In Psalm 54, it actually, the heading actually told us it was a, a betrayal of the Ziphites. Here we're not given that. But here in the heading, it, it just simply tells us that this is to, to the choir master with the stringed instruments, a mascal of David, likely a song that was sung. However, there's no real reason to believe, though, that this psalm is not indicative of a time when David himself was betrayed by his own son, Absalom. And that betrayal was then assisted by David's very close personal friend and counselor named Ahithophel. And the story can be found in, in 2 Samuel chapter 15. And if we go back to that, if, if you remember, it, the setting kind of starts with um, Absalom, David's son. He kills his brother. Okay, and he kills his brother because his brother violated his sister Tamar. And so Absalom flees from Jerusalem. And after a period of time, David brings Absalom back to the city of Jerusalem. But when, David, when Absalom comes back, he begins this conspiracy to overthrow his father's throne. And through a series of events, Absalom actually begins to win over the hearts of the people of Jerusalem. Absalom eventually comes to his father, David, and he says, let me go to Hebron that I may pay my vow to God. And of course, David says, go. And as Absalom heads off to Hebron, he sends secret messengers throughout the, throughout the world, throughout the, throughout the city, throughout the region. And he tells these secret messengers, hey, when you hear the trumpet blow, you, you tell the people, you say that Absalom is king in Hebron. Throughout this conspiracy, Absalom eventually sends for Ahithophel, David's trusted counselor. And Ahithophel, David's friend, his counselor, joins Absalom in this conspiracy and turns his back on David. And this psalm is really likely birthed out of the agony of that betrayal. And the pain was driven even deeper by this betrayal of a personal close friend of David, a man who David later describes in the psalm as his equal his companion, and his familiar friend. David begins this psalm with a petition. If you look at verse 1, and this petition is really two-part. He cries out, Give ear to my prayer, O God. And that's the first part of the petition. It's probably just kind of a general requesting of God to hear my prayer, hear the total content of my prayer, my requests, my praise, my confession. But the second part is more specific. He says, Hide not your face from my cries for mercy. And this is really an interesting request, one that David is not a stranger to. If you think back to Psalm 13, David then was also in great distress. And he says this to God. He says, how long will you hide your face from me? You see, David knows the pain and the despair of not sensing the experience of God's presence. And it's a difficult place to be. And here he is asking God to not hide himself from his mercy. But God doesn't ever really hide himself. And as John Piper says, what he withdraws is the sweetness of his fellowship from time to time or the conscious sense of his power. And see, God has his reasonings for doing this. And what David is ask, asking here is that God would not withdraw the experience of his presence and his help in this time of his despair. In verse 2, David moves on and he asks God to answer him. He says this, he says, Attend to me 
answer me. And this could, this could almost feel like an insubordinate attitude towards God, right? Answer me, God, I'm demanding you. But I don't think that's the heart of the psalmist here. I think what David is doing is conveying the heart of a desperate man to hear from his God. Have you, have you ever asked somebody a question, um, maybe by text message? You sent somebody a text message asking a question that you desperately want, want to know the answer to. And the longer that they don't respond, you're just kind of like, answer me. And you're just waiting. It's like, come on, why won't they answer me? I think that's, in a sense, the heart that David is conveying here. He's asking God, answer me. I'm desperate to hear from you. He's anxious to hear from God. And he goes on to say that I am restless in my complaint and I moan. And really, the description of David being restless here and moaning is meant to really drive us deeper into the, to the realities of the despair and the anguish that David is feeling the idea behind the word restless here is really this idea of freely roaming. And that might seem a little bit weird, but if you've ever experienced restlessness, it, it tends to make you move a lot, right? And I think about a time in my life when I was in deep anguish over circumstances in my life, and I couldn't sit still because I was just so troubled with the pains of my own thoughts. And I would actually just kind of move around the house and I couldn't stop. Because somehow that, move, that movement just constantly provided enough of a distraction to my own thoughts to make it somewhat just at least a little bit more bearable. And that's what David's doing here. He's restless. He can't stop moving. He's roaming about. He's in agony. And it says he moans. And here the idea is that the depths of David's pain go beyond what words can even express. So he moans in agony. And this idea of moaning going beyond the expression of words is given to us even in the New Testament in Romans 8.26. We are told that likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And that should be a comfort to us. That even in our agony, even in the experiences of life, we have... We have the Holy Spirit of God who intercedes in a way with these groanings that can't even express by words the depths of our despair and the depths of our anguish and the depths of our hope. The hope that we need in, in Him. There have been many times throughout my career that I have seen people with catastrophic injuries. And one thing that is common every time is that they moan. Nobody severely breaks a leg and says, that hurts. No, because that doesn't convey what they're experiencing, but there's this, oh, this hurts, there's this groaning that goes beyond what words can even convey. And that's what David is doing here. And this understanding and seeing that the Spirit groans in such a way for us should be an, an encouragement to us that even in the most difficult pains in our life, the Spirit of God intercedes for us in a way that words can't even express. David continues then in verse 3. And he begins to reveal the source of his pain and his complaint. And he says this. He says, it's because of the noise of the enemy and because of the oppression of the wicked. David's specific complaint kind of becomes twofold at this point. Number one, David hears the noise and the oppression from the enemy. And number two, if you jump forward to verses 12 to 14, David actually narrows down the greatest source and the cause of his pain to this betrayal of a close friend. See, the enemy mentioned in verse 3 here could be the masses of people rising up against him in this revolt of Absalom, or it could be a reference to Absalom himself, 
John Phillips, in his commentary, he says, It was Absalom, David's beloved son, who was raising the cons- conspiracy against David. Absalom wanted the king. Absalom wanted the kingdom and did not care whether his father was killed in the process. In fact, the death of David was essential to his plans. And it is likely that David, in some sense, whether it's from Absalom himself or whether it's through the people, is hearing the mockery of his own son who's betraying him. Then the oppression of the wicked is likely a reference to the masses of the resistance in Jerusalem because the verse ends that they, the people of the city, are dropping trouble on him and they bear a grudge against him. David, in verse 4, again, moves on to express his anguish And his pain is deepened by the fear that he will actually be killed in this conspiracy as there's this uprising against him. He fears death. And he actually says that he trembles and he's overcome by horrors. And David's response here is a bit surprising if if you've ever studied through David's previous laments. Because in previous Psalms, we know that David has been no stranger to despair, no stranger against the enemies coming against him. But David expresses something different than we've seen before in verses 6 through 8. David reveals his desire to flee and hide from his troubles. Look at verses 6 through 8. He says, And I say, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hurry to find shelter from the raging wind and tempest. And regarding these verses... James Boyce in his commentary says this. In verses 6 through 8, we find something new. The writer is so distraught by what he finds around him that he is thinking of how wonderful it would be to escape from his troubles. We have not seen anything like this before in David's Psalms. He has been been fearful before, but always he has seemed ready to confront the evil boldly. Nowhere before has he expressed a wish to escape his troubles, to fly away and and be at rest. Yet here he does. And David ends verse 7 with this Selah, which comes right in the middle of a sentence, which is odd. But I think what the psalmist is inviting us to do at this point is to pause and reflect on the depth of his pain, the depth of his anguish. Again, David is so in so much pain and the pain is so deep that it goes beyond words. It has caused horror and the fears of death to overcome him. The agony that his experience is so great that he's actually willing to exchange, and he's literally willing to give up his kingship, his luxuries, his comforts, his home for the comforts of the wilderness or the desert. Of this anguish, it's led one commentator to say, the poet is tempted not to wait for divine deliverance, but to exercise self-deliverance by fleeing to a place of shelter. See, where David began with this psalm, of a plea to God for mercy, he's now tempted to not wait for it. He's now tempted to try to fix the problem himself in his own strength. Have you ever been tempted to do the same thing? Because if we're honest, we're not that much different than David. In fact, when God doesn't answer our prayers the way that we, or in the timing that we expect Him to, or He doesn't answer them in the way that we expect Him to, we're ready to throw in the towel. When life-altering pain comes into our life, we're ready to give up. We're ready to up, uproot ourselves and plant ourselves in another location. Just say, I just want to start over away from the pain. We're tempted 
to do the same thing. But the problem is, is that response is not the response of faith. And I want to read, read Isaiah 40, verses, verse 31, because this really com- offers a, a, a healthy and a good contrast to what David is desiring at this point. Isaiah 40, 31 says, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And it's interesting here that in David's temptation, he is tempted. He desires to have wings like a dove, to be able to fly away to safety, likely to hide himself in the clefts of the rocks, where he would find his rest and his safety. But this is a sign of weakness. It's a sign of not being strengthened. It's a sign of fleeing and not trusting or waiting on the Lord. Here in Isaiah, the same idea of, 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 of Sprouting wings like an eagle is an, is, an idea that com- is an idea of strength. It comes from being strengthened by waiting upon the Lord. That you'll have these wings to soar in strength, that you will not become weary and you will not become faint. But David is tempted to not wait. And oftentimes we're tempted to not wait as well. David then in verse 9 makes a, a really an abrupt and a bold shift moving from this fear and this desire to flee, he now calls upon the Lord to actually destroy and divide what is happening within the city. To destroy and divide the tongues of his enemies. David's response here is interestingly familiar because I think what David likely had in mind was looking back to what God did at the Tower of Babel. When God stopped the efforts, the wicked efforts of wicked men by confusing their tongues and spreading them throughout the world. And what David seems to be doing here is calling God to confuse and put a stop to the wickedness that is happening within the city. David says he sees iniquity, trouble, ruin, oppression, and fraud. It's all happening within the walls of the city. You see, they built up walls around the city to protect the city from outside threats. But here the threat is contained within the walls of the city. And I don't think David here is just simply making a selfish appeal on his own behalf for his own personal vindication. But if you look at the words that he uses, he sees in the city, he sees, yes, yes, there's this uprising against him. But what he's seeing happening in the city is trouble, iniquity, ruin, oppression, and fraud. And these are things that go against the very righteous nature of God. And I believe that David's appeal here is likely to an appeal to God's own character. His righteousness. And that in His righteousness that God would thwart the wickedness that is happening in this city. David then again in verse 12 abruptly shifts his focus again with really kind of an unexpected claim, really. So far, David has addressed God with his complaints. David has addressed himself with his desires to flee and seek rest. He has again called upon God to destroy the efforts of the wicked. But now, David is going to change his focus and he's going to address a man specifically. David has been grieved by many enemies before But now he is faced with the betrayal of a close personal friend. And in verse 12 to 14, he says this. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, 
my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. See, the friend described here is likely Ahithophel, who is described in Second Samuel as David's counselor. And in this psalm, David um, considers him, David goes on to give this description of him. He considers him to be his equal, his companion, and his familiar friend. He's a man that, that David actually walked in close fellowship with within the house of God, amongst God's people. David is scared, and he is grieved by the enemy. He's scared to the point of death. But if, if that enemy, if it was just the people that were rising up against him, he says, I could bear it. But you, you my close friend, that's why David moans. David's restless in fear of what's happening, but he's moaning because the anguish, the sting of the betrayal. It's not just his son, but now it's this close personal friend of his who he... Who as king, he said, you're my equal. David goes on to further describe this betrayal of his friend in verses 20 and 21. He says of his, of his friend, he says, my companion, my companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. You see what... What causes us the most grief in our life? The most amount of pain? Is it not the hurt that comes from somebody closest to us? The betrayal that was in Ahithophel's heart was concealed by his words and his actions. It was concealed by the words of his lips. It was hidden by the sweetness of his company, by the softness of his words. But behind that false exterior of genuine loving friendship was deceit and death. David desires to flee from this pain. But how does David ultimately respond to this? Well, first of all, in verse 15, there's another awkward shift that moves from David addressing a single man to um, speaking about the people. He says this in verse 15. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. See, no doubt David had in mind here when the sons of Korah rose up against Moses. And in Numbers 16, it says this, And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die, as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up and all that belongs to them and they go down alive to Sheol, then you shall know that all these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their household and all the people who belong to Korah and all their goods. And this can seem like a, a selfish and a harsh request of David. But what David is doing is calling upon the Lord to give wicked people what they deserve. And if that happens, just like in the days of Moses, if that happens, it's evidence that this is what's from the Lord and not just simply from David. 
But David's response is furthered in verses 16 to 18. David, rec- David here recognizes God as his deliverer. He says this, he says, but I call to God and the Lord will save me evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan. He hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage for many are arrayed against me. See, in verse verse 16 here, David uses two defined titles for God. He says, I cry out to God, Elohim, which means, that title literally means God, the Almighty, the Mighty and the Strong. That is the God that David is crying out to. He says, and the Lord will save me. The title for Lord here is Yahweh. It really means the Lord will provide. And, and, and the name Yahweh was really memorialized by Abraham when God provided the ram as a substitute sacrifice in place of Isaac. The Lord will provide. David is crying out to this almighty God, the strong and mighty God, Yahweh, the one who provides and delivers. That is the God that David is crying out to. And the use of these two divine titles is very intentional by him. David knows he's his redeemer. Jesus is our redeemer. David calls upon Yahweh to save him. David longs to find rest. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 11, 28, Come to me, all who labor, labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, the same Yahweh that David cried out to is the same God, the same Jesus that invites us to come to Him for rest. Jesus said of Himself in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. He, Jesus alone, is our Deliverer. Jump down to verse 22. David offers an invitation here. David says, cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. See, in in Matthew 11, 28, after Jesus invites the weary to come to him, he says this. He says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you, if you are looking for rest this morning, look to Jesus. He promises. He says, I am the one that gives you rest. If you are burdened this morning, He doesn't promise to take your burden away, but He says to cast it upon Him. And you will find rest for your soul. Not only here does David find this Yahweh as his deliverer, but he also sees this almighty God as the righteous judge of the wicked. Look at verse 19. He says this, God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from old. And here is another Selah that really comes in the middle of a sentence. And this is really another time where the psalmist is really inviting us to reflect on the reality that God is our hope. He is the eternal God who is enthroned from old. 
And in His eternal reign, He is both our Redeemer, our Rescuer, and a righteous judge. And we're to remember that. And we're to reflect on that. Jump down to the final verse with me, verse 23. He says, But you, O God, will cast, cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. This is no guarantee that wicked men will die early, but it may be that they don't finish out their full life. It may be that they do. But the judgment comes here from God. They will be cast down into destruction for their wickedness. But David's confidence, where David's confidence at one point in time turned into itself and his self-reliance and his desire to flee in his own strength and find rest. He now comes to this conclusion. He says, but I will trust in you. David understands that the same God who delivers his people is the same God who will judge the wicked. Charles Spurgeon says this, all the prayers of saints and profanities of sinners are before his judgment seat and he will see that justice is done. Elohim, Yahweh, Elohim, mighty God, Yahweh, the provider and deliverer is both righteous judge and a gentle deliverer. And we need that. And we need to remember that this morning. Because in, in different ways, we all wrestle with difficulties in this life, don't we? We see many difficulties in our country, in our world, and the things that are happening. We need to remember that God loves us. Jesus is here to provide for us rest. So how do we how do we respond to this psalm this morning in our church in our culture? How do we apply this to our lives? Where are we going to put our trust? Are we going to are we going to rely on our self efforts? Are are we going to rely on our own human understanding to fix our problems? To give in to the temptations of the world that would be so much easier if I just went Went this way. I'm sure we've all experienced it as I have at times. It would just be easier just to give up and go the way of the world. It's not what we're called to. We're called to remember that God is our deliverer. God is our rescuer. God is a gentle deliverer. And recalling a couple points from the past three psalms that Sean has preached on, we, we remember that God wins and that it, it is foolish to live as though there is no God. And I want to encourage us this morning by remembering that if we felt the sting of betrayal, we can remember that Jesus too himself was betrayed by a very close friend. And there really is, you know, echoes of a future event in this psalm that points to Jesus betrayed by one of his 12 closest friends in Judas. Jesus understands our pains and our struggles. And I want to end this morning with this encouragement from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. He tells us, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us with confidence, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. See, we can, we can have confidence that our Redeemer, that our Rescuer, understands every struggle, trial, and experience that we have because He's experienced them too. And the very Spirit of God intercedes with groans on our behalf. Trust God. He, Jesus understands. He invites us to find rest in Him. Let's pray.